First book of Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Here endeth the reading. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, for your spirit uh, to help us to uh, work these glorious truths into our hearts, uh, that they might work out in our lives, and we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be aware that uh, this year marks the 500th uh, anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, that great uh, movement of uh, the renewal of the church. And uh, it was launched uh, by Martin Luther, of course, and uh, he once said this. He said, to progress in the Christian life is always to begin again. To progress is always to begin again. By which he meant, I think, that uh, embracing the gospel, that is to say embracing the good news that God has acted on our behalf, that is the way the Christian life begins. But it's also the way the Christian life develops. It is as we continue to embrace what God has done on our behalf, as we continue to reapply it, as we continue to work it into different avenues of our life, that is the way the Christian life develops and deepens. In other words, we never graduate from the gospel. Uh, as uh, Tim Keller, an American pastor, put it, the gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom. It is the way we make progress in the kingdom. 
Jesus talks about the beginning of the Christian life as new birth, that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are spiritually born again. And like all babies, we are born to grow. And the point is this, it is that same gospel, those same historic actions of God that bring us new birth when we put our faith in them. It is those same actions that as we continue to embrace them by faith, grow us as they are applied to the whole of life. So Tim Keller uh, continues, the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. And so it is no surprise that Paul closes uh, his great letter to the church in Corinth by taking them back to the gospel. Verse one, now brothers, sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. That is to say, this gospel is what begins the life of salvation. This gospel is what continues and deepens and grows the life of salvation. And the question then becomes, well, what is this gospel? What are these historic actions of God that bring new birth and then bring continual renewal and growth? And Paul outlines them for us in verses three to five. Have a look with me. The gospel is this. What I received, I passed on as first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I think it is true to say that the, uh, the journey to the joy of healing often begins with the darker moment of diagnosis. Uh, I guess that if you were to ask someone who had recovered from a potentially very serious illness, they would say that being correctly diagnosed, as difficult and as painful as, it, as that would have been, and those early days would have been, nevertheless, they were, in retrospect, the first steps to healing, the first steps to a new life. And so it is with the cross. Before the historical event of the cross can cure us, it must first be allowed to reveal our condition. And it does. As we look at the cross, we see something of our condition. One writer, New Testament scholar, uh, wrote this, which I thought was very helpful. He said, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If he'd perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he'd perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our rebellion, our death, and so he sent us a savior. The cross reveals our condition as God sees it. And so God sends us a savior to cleanse us from this life-threatening disease that the Bible calls sin. That is what the cross does. It cleanses us. By nature, there is something wrong, the Bible says, with the whole human race. There is something wrong with us at the level of our hearts, at the level of our motivations, at the level of our wills. 
And that expresses itself in doing wrong things, in thinking wrong things, in feeling wrong things, etc. This is what the Bible calls sin, and it is a life-threatening thing. And friends, Christianity will never be good news to us if we evade that truth. Uh, The events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, they'll never be good news to us if we evade that truth. The cross diagnoses us. And when we look at the cross and we see God's diagnosis and we hear God's diagnosis, we're faced with a choice. We can either run and hide from that and pretend it's not true, or we can turn to it and be healed. Uh, The Apostle John, in his first letter, puts it like this. If we claim to be without sin, well, we just deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this he does on the cross of Christ. You see, in his justice, God decreed that sin deserves death. It is a serious thing. But in his love, God delighted in Christ to die that death, to exhaust that penalty, that we might be really saved from the real wrongs we commit. The death of Jesus is the cure, and to receive it, all we need to do is acknowledge our need and to confess our sin, John says. And I want to say that the cross helps us to do that as well. See, the cross doesn't just cleanse us from our sin, it actually also coaxes us out of hiding so that we can accept what is offered at the cross. Because in the cross of Christ, we see supremely the love of God for us. And it is this love that coaxes us out of hiding. Because the cross says to us, doesn't it, as we we look at it, the cross says, I see your sin. I see it, and yes, it's serious, but look how much I love you. I have willingly laid down my life to save you and cleanse you from your sin. Such love would coax us out of darkness and into his light. And the Christian life begins as we come out of hiding for the first time and we receive that forgiveness and become part of the Christian family. But the Christian life continues and it deepens and it grows as we are freed to continue to be honest with God about what God still needs to change in our lives. How much uh, spiritual, emotional damage is done by, by walking around with sins in the closet that we, we don't reveal, exposed to the Lord for his healing. And the point about the cross is as we see God's love on the cross, it, it gives us the grace we need to open the door to the closet. God sees it. And he's been delighted to deal with it. So don't hide. We don't need to play games. We can open it before the Lord and bring it into his healing light. God has sought us in our sin and shame. He was delighted to take it upon himself. When we hide our sins, we set the bar very low on God's graciousness, don't we? When we say, here's a sin that I don't want to bring into God's presence, I don't want to admit, I don't want to expose, we're saying, I don't think God's graciousness could cover this, I don't think the cross is powerful enough to deal with this, here is something that God could never have foreseen when he sent his son. How low we set the bar 
to God's graciousness. How small a thing we make the cross when we hide. The cross is not wimpy. God knows all, he sees all. He was delighted to die for any and every sin his people commit. So we do not hide, for the cross coaxes us into its light. Frees us to be honest with each other. James says this, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. It's a helpful thing sometimes when we're struggling with a sin to confess it to God and then to speak to a brother or a sister and to confess it with them and to have someone that we're gonna walk alongside and to fight that sin with. We'll only do that if we're sure that the cross has forgiven us. The third thing I wanna say about the cross is it cleanses us, it coaxes us out of darkness into its light. And the third thing, as we look at the cross, we not only see the Lord Jesus dying on the cross, but by faith we also see ourselves. By faith, you see, we are not merely bystanders in the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we are participants. Faith unites us to the Lord Jesus, and his story becomes our story. Often uh, in the New Testament, Paul will talk about the fact that we were spiritually crucified with Christ. So I see myself on that cross with the Lord Jesus Christ. My old self-centered sinful self has died. The self that was a slave to sin, the self that had sin as its master, that ruled me, that defined me, that had the final say, I have died to that. And therefore, Paul says in Romans, we should count ourselves dead to sin. Which is to say, when it speaks to us, it does not speak to us as a master. It does not have the final word. It does not have the power to make us jump to its command. I have died to it in Christ. I once heard a preacher say that sin often presents itself as the real us. Sin often presents itself as the real us, and that's why we do it, because we think there is something inevitable about it. This is who we really are. I've always been like this, and therefore when this temptation comes, I'm bound to give in eventually, and so. When we look at the cross, we see our old selves crucified. The old me, under the rule of sin, is killed. Sin is no longer inevitable. The reality is that one day my true sin-free self will be revealed. One day, when God raises me from the dead and gives me a sin-free body, I'll live eternally sin-free. That, if you like, is the permanent me. That is where I'm heading. So let's fight sin knowing that it's not part of the permanent us. Its grip on us is weakening, and one day it will be banished. And that helps us in our battle with sin. Christ died for our sins, it cleanses us, it coaxes us out of darkness, and it helps us to battle sin as we see ourselves, our old selves, spiritually crucified. Secondly, Paul says more briefly, we were buried, or sorry, Jesus was buried. In one sense, of course, that just functions as a proof uh, of Jesus' death, just as the appearances are a proof that Jesus uh, rose again. But as I was meditating on these words, I was struck by... um, the words of Leviticus 16. I wonder if you remember, you don't need to turn to it, the Day of Atonement, the annual day that God gave his people in which their sins uh, could be forgiven by some actions that God gave his people to perform. And one of those actions involved two goats, famously the scapegoat. One of them was called the scapegoat. He had two goats, and the the idea was the high priest would sacrifice one goat, 
And with the other goat, the high priest would put his hands on the goat and would sort of call down, if you like, the sins of all the people and symbolically place them on that goat. And then the goat was released. In fact, it was sent out into the wilderness. Literally in Hebrew, it was sent out into the place of cutting off. And the idea was, God said, that symbolizes that when you confess, when you um, avail yourself of the sacrificial system, uh, your sins are carried away. They're carried far away into a place of cutting off, if you like, as far as the east is from the west, as the psalmist puts it. And as I was meditating on these words, it seemed to me that the burial of Jesus Christ is a wonderful picture of what his death achieves in that Christ takes our sin and he takes it to the place of cutting off. It is covered. It is buried. Now, it's not that our sin is forgotten by God, literally forgotten, and it's not to be literally forgotten by us because, as I think I've said before, you can't actually fight sin that you've literally forgotten. You can't be on your guard against sin that you've literally forgotten. You can't deal with the potential ongoing consequences of a sin, uh, such as um, you making good a relationship that you may have spoiled with sin, or perhaps even um, paying a civil penalty for a sin you may have committed. You can't do any of that if you literally forget your sin. But the point is, sin is covered. It is silenced as an accuser. It can no longer speak a word of condemnation before God. Again, here comes, I think, freedom to face and to fight sin. How many still live under the shadow of misplaced guilt? We must reapply the gospel afresh. Confessed sin is dead, it's buried. I read this um, on a sort of a, a pastoral care uh, website from a church in London, Holy Trinity Brompton. I thought it was helpful. The truth is that God's grace is more than we can ever fathom. And when we've confessed and repented before him, any sense of guilt or condemnation we might feel thereafter isn't from God. And they go on to say again, sharing it with someone else can take the power out of whatever it was. And then we can let go of any false guilt we may be holding on to. Leave it at the foot of the cross. God does not hold our forgiven sin against us. Jesus has paid the price. He's taken our guilt and shame. We must not live as though he hasn't. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and finally he was raised. Where do I look for confirmation that my sin has been paid for, that I have been cleansed, that God has drawn me to himself? Well, I don't look at my feelings, first and foremost. Feelings come and go. They wax and wane with the seasons of life, do they not? What side of bed we got out of, how well we've eaten in the last 24 hours, how tired we are, whatever it might be. We don't look supremely to our feelings to know that we are forgiven by God when we confess. We look to the resurrection of Christ. Because the resurrection of Christ is God's vindication of Christ. It is God's acceptance of Christ and his sin-bearing work for his people. And as the Father gives new life to his Son, he also, through him, offers new life to his people. Again, you see, we're not merely bystanders in the events of the resurrection 2,000 years ago. By faith, we are participants, spiritually now, one day physically. 
the picture, uh, sorry, the resurrection is a picture of our future physically, and that is good news. The good news that death need not be feared, the grave has become a gateway. But the resurrection is also a picture of our present spiritually. Christ is risen with new life, new life for us to live now. We don't have time to go into it as you read on in verses 1 to 11. Paul, of course, is a wonderful example of that truth. The new life of the risen Lord Jesus broke into his life in a dramatic way and changed him from being a persecutor of the church to being a preacher for the church, its greatest apostle. That is a picture of the new life that Jesus has, the new life that Jesus pours out on his people, turning a life upside down. And the same is true for us, maybe not as dramatically as the Apostle Paul, but nevertheless equally true. We are not followers of a dead teacher. We are temples of the living Lord. Again, this is great truth for those of us as we seek to grow and to be renewed and to change and to battle sin. The risen Christ is alive and alive in us. So here is new potential. Here is new possibilities of living. Our hearts are alive because Christ now lives there bringing his new resurrection life. My heart can now respond in new ways, good ways, godly ways, glorious ways to old temptations or new temptations. Sin is no longer at the helm. It's no longer at the center of my heart. Jesus is. So we have an amazing potential to change and to grow as the Spirit helps us to work the truths of the gospel into every part of our lives. That's not to say living the Christian life is easy. It is a battle. We will not be perfect this side of heaven until the Lord raises us with sin-free bodies. We will still struggle, but we are no longer slaves to our old ways, for we have died to the penalty and the power of sin. The risen Lord Jesus is alive in our hearts and he gives us new desires to go his way in life. And not only does he give us new desire, but as we seek it, he gives us new power. New power to change, new power to battle sin, new power to be renewed, because we have the risen Christ, the risen Lord of life in us, who is daily seeking to renew us by the power of his spirit. And so our prayer is that the Lord Jesus would take these wonderful truths, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised to new life, and that in him we have forgiveness and new life. Heavenly Father, we pray you would take those truths, and as we prayed at the start, we pray you'd work them into our hearts, that they would be worked out in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.